I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. One of the leading chroniclers of the modern age fascist and anti-fascist movements is our guest today, senior writer for Mike. Jack Smith IV has resonated as a most audacious, truth-telling journalist. When the status quo of reporting is to magnify the sensational on the one hand, or to normalize extremism, think Donald Trump's very fine people remark in response to Nazis and white supremacists marching, Smith is forthright, forthcoming, demanding that we confront hate and hold accountable those who infect our society with it. Smith also movingly captured the spontaneous airport demonstrations rallying against the administration's Muslim ban and has exposed the nationwide surge in anti-Semitism and hate crimes, capturing viral portraits of everyday racism posted to social media. In response to one CNN anchor's criticism of a guest who called out a documented white nationalist, I tweeted, civility is speaking truth to power for the preservation of civil society. It's necessary to call out bigots for their bigotry, and it's uncivil to not do so. Jack, with that as our preamble, it's really great to meet you. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Strong lead. Strong lead, but I'm inspired by your reporting all the way from the advent of this administration and its implementation of the travel ban. Take us back to that moment maybe a recognition in our society in America that this administration was governing with an authoritarianism or a discriminatory attitude that we haven't seen in the Oval Office in recent decades. Particularly the work I do, you know, I'm no, um, I'm no Beltway journalist. My experience of the administration is generally... I try to be present where there is activism, where there is radicalism, extremism, where there's sudden outpourings of grassroots energy. I think it became clear from the outset of this administration that this was going to be an audacious, offensive, uh, brash, loud moment in which people didn't know what stood anymore in the realm of acceptable politics or... Uh, the realm of what's, what's possible sort of in our civic life. And so right out the gate in the Trump administration, we have people challenging the realm of possibility. We have an incredibly, we have an incredible excitement from the left. This is going to be an opportunity. Um, this, this crisis offers us an opportunity to really reimagine what liberals and progressives and the left should be asking for and how they should carry out those demands. And on the right, an opportunity to shift the boundaries of conversation more in their favor. And so right out the gate, we had the administration and we had activists, both on the right and the left, immediately issuing their challenges. And one of the, you know, I was so... So the first thing that happens is the J-20 riots, right? It's Inauguration Day, and for the first time in really recent memory for somebody as, as young as me, we have hundreds of anti-fascists 
and anti-capitalists taking to the streets and burning a stretch limo. Um, we have... Uh, that was on Trump's inauguration. That was on Trump's inauguration day. Many people don't um, sort of spend an, a, a lot of time talking about the J-20 riots because immediately sort of comfortable uh progressive liberals who fancy themselves respectable um, citizens and maybe even centrists uh, were very quick to decry the violence. I, I, I got back to the hotel in D.C. from inhaling smoke from a burning limo to see Rachel Maddow looking on the activists and shaking her head. What a shame to have distracted from the protests that day. So immediate consternation. But Hundreds of people were, I think around 200, I'm ashamed I don't have that number off the top of my head, something like 198, were facing felonies, 10 years in, in jail or whatever, rounded up en masse and have been prosecuted in batches. Now, luckily, most of those cases have been dismissed, but the, the prosecutorial effort towards the J-20 anti-fascists who broke a Starbucks window, a McDonald's window, burned a limo, and, and, and otherwise um, created a little mess that was mostly cleaned up by the next day, um, these people have faced an incredible, um, incredible and indiscriminate crackdown. Um, so we had the J-20 at the outset, immediate like, explosions of, of, of uncommon, what you might call uncommon activism. Um, and then the, 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 what's called the Muslim ban, or more accurately, obviously, the travel ban protests, right, which would, be, it would have been about a month later, you know, mid, mid-January, um, as soon as people realized that individuals were being detained and held indefinitely at the airports, it wasn't just people who were rushing in uh, to stand outside of JFK's international arrivals and protest by the thousands. There were lawyers. You know, one of the untold stories of that day is the dozens of lawyers who showed up working pro bono, setting up a shop in the terminal, taking 24-hour shifts, um, you know, those are some of the, the fascinating progressive stories from this thing. But obviously, um, the right has been hard at work in terms of grassroots activism. Well. We're taping on a day that Trump's travel ban was upheld. It seems to me that when Donald Trump called for a total shutdown of Muslims entering this country, that that was a particular, not a peak moment, because we haven't necessarily reached peak bigot for Donald Trump, but it was an alarming recognition that whether it was for Breitbart's extremist readers or for the body politic, this man was going to govern in a way, again, as I said from the outset, that was different from his immediate predecessors. That was actually targeting people potential immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and our own Americans, targeting them based on their religion, targeting them based on their skin color. Um, and so connecting the dots of that decision being realized, it's different from the tears of the Clinton supporters not breaking that glass ceiling at the Javits Center. Because the tears that I myself shed that day when we were denying entry of people on the basis of their religion. That was a different tier. That was not a partisan tier. Yeah, and I think, 
I think that kind of denial of uh, it's a deni- it's it's a it's a fundamental denial of hum- humanity, right? And you know, when when today, while this is being recorded, we're also dealing with um, the issue, which hopefully by the time this is airing is not so much in our in our conversation, but the issue of detaining um, immigrant children, family separation. Just yesterday, I believe um, some of the same anti-fascists who have been have been protesting white nationalism in the Trump administration for the past year and a half or so have, have shut down Im- immigration courts here in New York to, to, to throw sort of throw their bodies at ice to prevent them from doing their work. Um, it is of a different character, but but I, I re- you know, I reject the notion that, for example, the anti uh, the anti-Muslim sentiment of the Trump administration is of a new character, you know, that Donald Trump would, that President Trump would employ anti-Muslim sentiment speaks to sort of what the heart of much of the modern conservative movement has become. We talk about uh, anti-blackness as an important, um, as an important demography of racism in this country because Anti-blackness is very, a, a very strong form of racism in our national history, clearly. But one of the things that we don't talk about in terms of Donald Trump's presidency is the Christian nationalism that drove it and the anti-Islam sentiment that drove it. We like to think of the evangelical movement of something that was a Bush era problem. Remember that? We were young and everybody thought to themselves, oh God, this whole thing's just, it's the New York Times says the heart of the new American suburb is the megachurch, and, and now, you know, God is out the window. Well, actually, we, what we know now is that Christian nationalism, uh, some studies out of, I believe it was Clemson, show that Christian nationalism is one of the, prime, not, not being a white Protestant, but holding Christian nationalist beliefs that America should be a Christian nation, etc., is one of the highest predictors for Trump support and controlled for Controlling for Christian nationalism and anti-Islam sentiment taken together predicts Trump support higher oftentimes than anti-feminism, than generalized xenophobia, um, than anti-black sentiment, and more than economic, what we call economic anxiety. And so this anti-Muslim rhetoric um, is incredibly important to speaking coherently and directly to the fears of modern conservatives, not just in the U.S., but most certainly in Europe. The idea that permits would be awarded or rewarded to documented white nationalists, um, when we think of that reality in 2018, how do we deal with it as journalists and as citizens, uh, I think there is a legitimate argument to deny white pride permits, uh, at least in certain spaces where there is an acknowledgement of what is the public good, and the public good is not white nationalism. And I will say, you know, it would be a comfort to those at home, maybe, to know that since Charlottesville, they've had a pretty rough time. The the formal alt-right movement sort of what we think of as the 10 to 20 figureheads of modern white nationalism and white, neo-na- white neo-Nazism, you know, the, the, the real fringe, right? Um, they've had a real tough time in the past year since Charlottesville. Uh, Charlottesville really um, heightened the sense of 
anxiety and heightened the rejection of those movements. Uh, many of the leaders have uh, fallen into disgrace, gone to jail, uh, tried holding follow-up permits only to be drowned out embarrassingly. They, many of them have had domestic abuse scandals. It's really been, they've had a pretty miserable time of it and were rejected for follow-up rallies in Charlottesville. Um, so on, on the one hand, there will be a follow-up rally. Um, Jason Kessler, who, who, who initially held the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, finally got one for outside the White House. You know, Washington, D.C. is pretty permissive. Uh, I think it'll be him, 10 sympathizers, 100 reporters, and 1,000 counter-protesters. But, um, but I think when you say, <clears throat> how do we handle this thing? We have two things. There's two things that we can deal with explicitly. We can deal with the alt-right, so we've got a combination of uh, misogynist extremists, but um, more virulent racists, people who believe that America um, should be a whites-only nation or, that, or white separatists, people who believe that, uh, the, 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 that white people should break off, that there should be self-determination, that we should re-gerrymander and segregate the nation. These are extremists, and we... Including the newest Supreme Court member, Neil Gorsuch. <laughs> Well, then we have American conservatism, reactionary thought, and mainstream racism at large. And I think one of the ways that we can address white nationalists, the, the fringe guys explicitly, is by looking at the through lines between what they believe and seeing the common threads between where white nationalism, the white nationalist leaders and movement are similar to and different from modern conservatism. On the one hand, um, modern conservatists are, modern conservatives, sorry, are nominally pro-constitution, right? Very not white nationalist belief. On the other hand, if you watch, and I've done plenty of work documenting sort of like Tucker Carlson's um, slide into some pretty ugly rhetoric, Tucker Carlson's show and, and many other conservative media outlets are channeling some very, very ugly and dark narratives um, that re- explicitly mainstream fringe white nationalist lines of thinking. For example, uh, one, one idea is uh, the concept that immigration, that, there, that there's going to be a demographic shift um, that uh, black and brown people from within and without will overthrow the order and displace white Protestants. Well, if you watch Tucker Carlson and he, his, his, his segments on the panic of the state of men, what do you see? You see a, a, a major news media figure, national news figure, linking, delicately linking, but linking immigration to declining fertility in white men, well, men in America, but that I think the implication is meant to be white men. Um, it's, it's that I think is the way we can look at white nationalism responsibly is by, is by, in, is by becoming expert at it by the way, because then you'll be able to see it. Then we can see it. You identify in the more encouraging news the marginalization of the folks like Richard Spencer at the top. That's right. But in a most depressing 
reality, you cite simultaneously that the elite, the Fox News hosts, are signaling, and President Trump too, to those very fine people that it's okay. So you have, on the one hand, campaigns like Sleeping Giants, and for those in the audience, Google Sleeping Giants. Sleeping Giants is a campaign to make bigotry less profitable. They'll go to, they'll, uh, they'll see a Sears ad on some horrendously racist Breitbart article. And they'll screen grab it and send it to Sears and say, can you believe that your, your ads are showing up on the site and Sears or whoever it is will, will say, oof, I'm out. And one of the notable examples of a mega corporate giant that has not acted responsibly is Amazon. Because uh, according to Sleeping Giants, Amazon will still advertise Breitbart and, and host the NRA TV show, which is engaged in, I would say, hateful rhetoric uh, that could be very much aligned with white nationalists. And sells <clears throat> white nationalist literature, by the way. And sells white nationalist literature. If you, if any, any, if you want to get uh, uh, writers like Jared Taylor, the head of American Renaissance, if you want to get his books, the, 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 <clears throat> all of the foundational texts of the modern, what we might call the, the modern intellect, you know, the, the, the elite racist literature of the day. Oh, it's all available on Amazon. Amazon Prime, probably. We had Shane Burley here, an expert on modern-day fascism, and talked about how do you transcend the Antifa or anti-fascist idea that you're calling out outrages, but you don't have a counter vision that is also uh, rooted in civil society and civil norms. The vast majority of folks in those inaugural protests were not setting ablaze the streets. There were certain people who probably were. Oh, probably engaged. a couple hundred anti-fascist protesters, <clears throat> several thousand. Uh, Mike, my, my news organization, and one or two others, you know, the Washington Post live blog covered them. But yes, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Ten, no. Maybe 10,000 peaceful protesters marching through the streets. Black Lives Matter shut down an entrance. Remember how we saw the inauguration law and the famous picture of, like, there's not many people there, and everybody sort of teased Trump about that? Well, that was because peaceful protesters in climate justice, Black Lives Matter, anti-war coalitions shut down the entrances. Almost nobody talks about that to this day. Black Lives Matter activists chained themselves, wrapped themselves in chains, and closed down I think there were eight entrances to the inauguration or something like that. Maybe three of them closed. It's astounding. But yeah, many peaceful protesters. In this environment where Trump and his allies want to bemoan and, and demonize the other, how do you coalesce around a vision of democracy and an American pluralism that is going to unify this country? Well, it's an enormous question. I think that the – here's what I, I could say without – because I think the funny thing is a lot of journalists who cover activism from the sitting in the office and writing op-eds perspective proselytize, over-proselytize to protesters. Anti-fascists will behave however they want. Um, I think that what well-meaning progressives would – maybe might recognize right now 
are what their values are independent of what they are opposed to. I think one of the great criticisms of the 2016 Democratic campaign was that it identified itself only by its opposition to Trump's garishness. Um, Right now, we have a Democratic Party struggling in its messaging and struggling to articulate its vision. Uh, That's been pretty well documented by political reporting. I mean, it's it's pretty uncertain who's going to take up the mantle for, for 2020. It feels like a pretty broad game. There's some very interesting research and some fascinating writers who who write of a big truism that we should come to terms with, with, which is that progressives are actually pretty firmly united on certain issues like anti-racism, universal health care and such, broadly to the left of the Democratic Party. Broadly to the left of the Democratic Party. Poll, if you poll Democrats, um, something – the Democratic base – you know, they don't have problems with identity politics. 76 to 80 percent of Democrats poll for repealing Obamacare and replacing with single-payer health care. And we don't see that as reflected as a, as, a, as a Democratic talking point. More and more we do, but I think that modern progressivism has – maybe, I think many people will say, has lost its sense of – Shared values that, yes, as you said, present a, present a, a vision for the future. The conservatives right now have an incredibly active imagination for what's possible in conservatism. What if we shut down the borders? What if we separate children? It would do well for progressives to imagine if we, if a progressive, if we as progressives... Um, could imagine whatever we wanted, universal health care, um, different, a, a much more broad pathway to immigration, a return of, you know, the labor movement, which used to be so important to the progressive vision. What does a progressive stand for? And if you could say what you wanted without apologizing, what would you say? The great, the great trick, you know, progressive, every progressive, somebody wrote this in Rolling Stone, every progressive grows up being told that you're a utopian who has to compromise. When you come to the table, come ready to appease the conservatives. We had Obamacare written into law with a hundred, I think a hundred, a hundred or so provisions meant to appeal to conservatives and not a single one voted for it. Well, what, what would you ask for if... If that, if that center that you're appealing to didn't really exist. Right. Because a lot of the good data says that <clears throat> it maybe doesn't as much as Democratic establishment would like you to believe. And I also think a question for the Democratic Party and progressives is, do they acknowledge the betrayal of actual conservatism? Because what conservative thinking has become uh, is Willie Horton on steroids directed animus at Muslims. And there are definitions of conservatism that can fall actually squarely within more forward-thinking Democratic Party or progressive um, ideas defending the Constitution. That was at one juncture a conservative idea. So how do you channel both the progressive ideals and at the same time appeal to people who really are now no longer registered Republicans because since Trump's election, they've become unaffiliated or 
now they're willing to vote Democratic. And I will just say to our viewers, I think that there is an understanding among the citizenry that in 2018, voting for a Democrat is not a political or partisan choice if you care about oversight and restoring Democratic norms. It's a patriotic duty. And I think there's at least the beginning of that understanding. We only have a minute or so left, Jack, but I want to just present this final question to you, which is, thinking about the authoritarian's playbook, we have every reason to be alarmed at what's going on, but we don't want to be fatalistic in believing that Trump's way or Trumpism has to be the future. What can you say from your reporting on those who've fought tooth and nail the rise of that authoritarianism that gives us inspiration that we shouldn't be fatalistic about Trump's erosion of democratic norms? Uh, both sides rightly see a crisis. There's an cri- ecological crisis. There's economic crisis. We face all sorts of crises. And there are two opposing visions. Uh, one comes from the far right, who write one of the things they're wrong about so much. They are right about one thing, is that we have a crisis. And their solution is shut it down, uh, bring back hierarchy, set up the, make the walls higher. There isn't enough. What would an alternative vision look like? I'll just end like this. In England, the, when, Therese, uh, when, the, when the prime minister called for prime minister called for a re-election of all the P, of all the M, of all the MPs. Okay, she believes she's going to have a supermajority, and the left made a very big move. Jeremy Corbyn and the left made a very big move. Let's have a manifesto. We're going to nationalize the railways. We're going to make. We're going to shore up universal health care. We're going to make college free for all. He said, we don't need anything except for an unapologetic vision of solidarity. It was one of the greatest electoral upsets um, in British history. They thought they were going to move from a majority to a supermajority, and she almost lost her seat as prime minister. Um, It would do well to, to think not, what do we say to those who are afraid and want to build the walls higher, but um, what would it mean if we actually live in a society where everyone can be taken care of? And what could we do to actualize the distribution of those resources on, for the benefit of all people? To be continued, Jack, a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Anne Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, the Angelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, 
and to the corporate community, Mutual of America.